So as you all probably know, may remember, um, I am from Atlanta, um, Atlanta, Georgia, and this past week was talking to somebody who I'm uh, good friends with back in Atlanta, and we hadn't spoken in a number of weeks, and we're catching up, and uh, this person asked me, they're like, so what are you guys doing at Covenant for Advent? And I said, oh, well, we're doing this thing called, uh, and the soul felt its worth. It's the series that we're in, and we're kind of talking about it, and they're like, oh, that's kind of a cool uh, title, where did, did, like, was that original? Did you come up with that? And I wanted to say yes, and then I'm like, no, it's actually from the song, A Holy Night, and um, uh, he appeared, and like, so what are you, like, what scripture passage are you looking at? And I said, well, we're looking at the book of Numbers. And they said, like, seriously? And I said, yeah, yeah, we're looking at the book of Numbers. Uh, and, and the person said on the phone, like, there's nothing that gets you in the Christmas spirit like the book of Numbers. Like, that just, like, does it for me every time. And then, and then they said, uh, you know, the thing is, is that uh, that's, that's kind of weird for a number of reasons, but they said one of the things is, like, I prefer, like, the New Testament God versus the Old Testament God. Um, I like the New Testament God because God's, like, loving and, and full of joy and grace and forgiveness, and the Old Testament God's, like, smiting a lot. I don't know what smiting is, but it doesn't sound good. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't sound like God's doing very well. And so, it's weird to me that you guys are kind of spending time not in the book of Numbers, but in the Old Testament. And I always have to be careful because there's like the, the seminary trained parts of my brain that are going, it's not two gods, right? It's like, it's like I hear that and you're like, it's, it's not two gods, right? It's not, there's not the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. Um, it's one God. And, and one God who actually is kind of bigger than either of those stereotypes, right? Like I get what that means, but God is bigger than either of those stereotypes, right? You know, because to classify the New Testament and to classify Jesus as just like, you know, it's just about love and grace and forgiveness, it's like, no, it's about a lot more than that. It's not just about, Jesus is not some guy walking around the hills going, hey, it's like, you know, can't we just love each other? I just got this idea, can't we just get along and like, you be you and I'll be me and we'll tolerate each other and it's just everyone will just sort of find their own thing and, and it'll be politically correct and ascetic all the time and it'll just be like, you know, just kind of this like, just, let's just love really, really well, guys. That's not who Jesus talked a lot about, about judgment and he talked about division, and he talked about families being against each other at times. He talked about uh, places of, of wailing and gnashing of teeth. It, it's, it's wrong to classify like Jesus is the warm, fuzzy, we just love everybody. That is a, that is a, a gross reduction of what Jesus is about. Yes, he's about grace and love and forgiveness, but, but his message was bigger than that. Jesus understood the truth of humanity. It's what brought him to the cross. That's what took him to the cross. And he came face to face with it. At the same time, the Old Testament God, when, that, when it said that way, isn't like this really angry God who just needs to mature a little bit, right? Like it sounds that way. When you're like, the Old Testament God's just angry and judging and everything else. Like, listen, God wasn't going through an angry phase. God didn't have to mature out of it, right? It's like God wasn't kind of waiting and then Jesus came along and was like, hey, I've kind of moved into my happy place and now I'm like friendly again and good. The Old Testament is, is a story that, yes, is about God who is powerful and God who is, um, has anger and righteous anger at times, just as we see in the New Testament. But I'm hoping in this series that we also see that all of the things that in that kind of stereotype of like there's the New Testament God of like love, the, the good guy God, right? There's like, it's, like, it's like bad cop, good cop, right? Old Testament's bad cop. Jesus is like good cop, right? It's like, no, 
there's so much that's from the very beginning, from thousands of years before Jesus in the Old Testament, that is all the stuff that we love about, about what we see in the New Testament, about grace and about peace and about um, hope and about life and about love, this incredible love that God has for us. And my hope is that even in the book of Numbers, we find that. The book of Numbers and this blessing that we're looking at, the priestly blessing from number six, that we are actually getting this sense of like how much our God loves us. How much God loves and values you, every single one of you. And it's amazing the love of God that is poured out in the scriptures and poured out on his people. Okay? The book of Numbers in the scripture that we've been looking at where we say that hopefully in it our soul finds its worth is uh, from Numbers chapter 6. And we're looking at just a few verses from Numbers chapter 6 from the very end starting in verse 24. And this is the scripture passage. It says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that today that, that every one of us walks in here with different hopes and different dreams and different disappointments and different doubts and different insecurities and different fears, different sin, different temptations, different brokenness, different beauty. May we encounter you today and may our souls find their worth. May we walk out of here a joyful and expectant people because of your love for each of us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in this series, what we've been trying to do is to say that, as Dallas Willard writes, our souls are needy. That at our core, what every single one of us is a soul. We're not just a body, we're not just a person, we're not just an individual, we're not just people with preferences. But at our core is our soul. And that our souls are the things that are like the essential, eternal parts at the core of you. Every single one of you has a soul. And Dallas Willard writes about the soul and he says that it's the place that combines your mind and your heart and your will. It's that thing that is eternal, that will never die, that is a part of every single one of us. And that our souls, Dallas Willard says, are needy. That they are always, they are searching for meaning. That, that, that we are a restless people. Human beings are restless. And we're constantly looking for like, how do we find meaning? How do we find value? How do our souls find their worth? And Willard says that what most of us do is that we try to throw lots of good stuff into our souls to feed it. And it feeds it for just a little while. Right? So we have the perfect job and the perfect spouse and the perfect kids and the perfect friends. We get invited to the right parties. We go to the right events. We make the right sports teams. We get honor rolls status. We get a promotion at work. We have a golden retrievers and our Volvo station wagon and our white picket fence and just this perfect postcard life of how everything works. And when that all comes together, it's like, man, look, my life is worth something. This is where it's in family and it's in all this kind of, this is where we find meaning. And the message of the gospel is, and the message of this series is, is that all of those things can be good, but none of them feed our soul long term. They are short term fixes that make us feel good in a moment, but are not truly satisfying. And as, it, as we just saying, as Holly just saying, that the one place our souls truly find and discover their worth is in our relationship with God. It's in Jesus. 
It's in that relationship that he appears and our souls come to know their worth. So the point of this series that we're asking is, what is so unique about Jesus? What is so different about God versus everything else in the world? Not bad stuff, all the good stuff in this world, but why is it that our souls, that, that, that essential part of you, why is it only in Jesus that our souls discover their worth, their value, why they're important, okay? That's what we're doing in this. And this is a really important question for each of us. So two weeks ago, we said, well, one of the things about God is that God blesses us, right? The Lord bless you and keep you. And that you and I are sort of trained, and all of us do this, every single person in this room does this, is that we are sort of trained uh, in our minds to look at the world and not really pay much attention to our blessings. We're constantly looking at what isn't right, right? Of who's done better than us, of who has more than us, of whose kids are better than ours, of whose life is better than ours, of who's got it together, of whose marriage is better. And we're all looking at each other going, oh, well, that's where people have it figured out, right? We don't pay attention to our blessings. What we do is we pay attention to the parts of us that feel like they're not blessed, that feel like they're hard, that feel like they're Uh, incomplete and difficult, and we look at other people, it creates this game of comparisons where we look at other people going, man, well, if my life was like Nathan, uh, was like uh, uh, Whitney, if my life was like Billy, if my life was like Billy and Jess, if my marriage was like Billy and Jess, if everything was like, then it would be great, right? Like, they've got it together, and they've got it figured out, and they're willing to do this stuff, and, and you know, Andrew and Whitney, and all this. It's like, it's incredible, and, and my desire is to be there, and the ironic part is that for all of us, no matter who you're looking at that has it there, when we're not paying attention to our blessings, the whoever you're looking at, they're looking maybe back at you or at other people going, man, if I was only like these people, then it would be better. I mean, the whole game is rigged in a way so that we are constantly thinking that somebody else has it together. And what does it mean to us to see that God blesses us, that God blesses all of us, and we have to retrain our mind to see and to appreciate and to abide in and dwell in the blessings God has for us. We talked last week about what does it mean for The Lord to keep us, to be our protector, our shield and defender. That God protects us whether we deserve it or not. And in God's blessing us and in God's keeping us, when we sit in that and go, man, God is my protector. God blesses me every day. God blesses this world. God blesses my family. That these are things that we sit in and our souls begin to feel their worth. They begin to sense the value that you have in the eyes of God who blesses and keeps you. And today what we're going to be talking about is what does it mean when the the second line of the blessing that the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. What is it about that idea? What does that mean? And what is it about that idea where our soul finds its worth? Okay. Next week we'll be ending with um, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Because as we all know, the journey towards Christmas is, if nothing else, a time of peace and tranquility for, for everybody, right? So what does it mean to, to dwell in that? But today, what does it mean for uh, the Lord to make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you, okay? Well, if you've been here for a while, when we think about it, what does it mean for the Lord to make his face shine upon us? One of the things I hope that you learn to see is different threads that run through Scripture, 
okay? These different threads that if we study the Bible enough, you start seeing that every book's not different. It's not just this random collection of images and stuff, but that there's lots of threads that run from the beginning to the end of Scripture. And this idea of seeing the face of God is one of those threads that runs through the Scripture. We talked about it a few weeks ago, okay? For instance, you see at the very beginning of the Bible, you see it early on for, uh, for in the, like the book of Exodus, where Moses is interacting with God in the tabernacle and where uh, Moses is talking to God, and yet there's a veil that separates the presence of God from Moses because it says that, that, that the essence of God's holiness is found in his face. And so Moses is actually not able to look at the holiness of God, to see the face of God, that Moses, and that none of us are righteous enough to be able to do that. So a veil separates God from Moses, from seeing his face. There's one part in the book of Exodus where Moses actually specifically prays to see the face of God. And it says that God puts Moses on a mountain and passes by, like God literally bodily passes by Moses, and yet his hand covers Moses' face so that Moses will not be able to see the face of God. Because the face of God, which Moses most desires, is not something that he is yet in a position to behold. This thread is there from the very beginning, the desire to see God's face. And we said a few weeks ago as we ended Thy Kingdom Come, the series that we were in in the fall, that Revelation 22, the final chapter of the Bible, all hinges around this image of seeing God's face. That if you and I think about something that all of us are going to experience, hopefully not for a while, hopefully for a long time, but heaven, eternity, where does, what is this thing of heaven? It's not the place where you just go, you go do whatever you want, right? I mean, we've all heard people say this, like, oh, well, you know, he'll finally be able to just play golf. If, there's, if, there's, if it's heaven, there's golf in heaven, and they're going to be able to golf whenever they want to. It's like, no, no, that is not what heaven is. It is not an eternal church service. It is not an eternal place of golf courses or fishing or whatever it else is you want. It's like, if you imagine my perfect day, that's not what heaven is. It's just your perfect day again and again and again and again and again. Heaven, eternity, the new Jerusalem is is based upon the idea that you and I are going to gather around the throne of God and that where we are going to spend eternity, where you and I are going to lose track of time because we are going to be so captivated by God, is that when we gather around his throne, it says that we will see his face. That as we gaze into the face of God, this thing that from the opening passages of Scripture people desire to see, that it's in the end that we will see his face and we will worship him forever. That that is heaven. So this idea in the book of Numbers of the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you, this is one of those threads that is an essential part of Scripture. And what it reminds us about, guys, is this. The idea of seeing the face of God and this being a part of the priestly blessing, it reminds us that at our core, you and I are made for relationship. We are made for relationship. We are not human doers. We are not human accomplishers. We are not human performers. We are human beings. And that as human beings, we find our meaning and our purpose in relationships. I've mentioned this before, but it's something that we need to, I think, hear over and over again. One of my favorite authors is John Ortberg. And John Ortberg, before he was a pastor and an author, he studied psychology. And he says that when you look at people when they come to the end of their life and are dying, 
one of the most common regrets that people have is that they didn't pay enough attention to the relationships in their life, their relationship with God and their relationship to other people. Why? Because we're so busy working. So busy working and accomplishing and sacrificing. And And Ortberg's saying, he's not saying work's bad, but what he's saying is, is that the common regret people have is, I wish I had not been so focused on being the, the career person that I had dreamed of being, that I sacrificed being my spouse or being with my friends or being with my kids or being with the, my family and the people around me, and they realize it when they can't get it back. We as human beings, part of our brokenness of our sinfulness is that we naturally sacrifice relationships for accomplishment and for the resume and for doing. And what this blessing is reminding us of is that at our core, our soul will not find our worth in what we do and what we accomplish and what we perform. No matter what kind of achievements or awards or distinctions you receive, your soul will not find meaning in your accomplishments. That our souls find meaning in relationship. starting with our relationship with God. So the priestly blessing is is for the Lord's face to shine upon you, for you to be secure in your relationship with your Heavenly Father. And that's not something you can earn. And that gets to the second part. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Now when we see the word gracious here, that doesn't mean that the Lord's going to be really polite. That's sometimes how we mean it. It's like the Lord's just going to be a super polite person. The Lord uses his please and thank yous. He's a very gracious God, right? Like that is not what it means. What it's saying is, is that this is the presence of divine grace, of divine grace poured into your life. And so that our relationship with God is not something, that God's face shining upon us is not something we can earn. It is given to us as a gift of grace. It is a gracious act. And we have to, at some level this morning, consider that our souls finding their worth is about retraining our brain for how to live in that and dwell in that. Because here's the thing, everything about our world teaches us that we have to earn our worth. Even that idea, the soul felt its worth. We know how things become worthy and worthwhile. They earn something, they accomplish something. Worth can come and go. Worth in in every aspect of your life, in your grades, in your work, um, even in relationships at times. You have to constantly be proving yourself and proving your worth. And what happens with that is that you and I live in a world where there's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of worry. There's a lot of comparisons. We see people as competition. I know that this is true for many of us. There are many of us in this room who at some level, and I know it's church and I know we don't admit this out loud, but there is a piece of us that when you see someone who you see on the pedestal struggle, there's a little piece of you that likes it. Because our world is based on worth and worth being found in accomplishment. And so when someone else isn't accomplishing as much or their life isn't as perfect as it seemed, there's a little piece of us that feels validated. And what we have to retrain our minds to do is to realize that worth is something that is given to us in relationship. Now, what that means, and I just want to, I want to try to illustrate this because it's a, it's a basic concept, but it can be, it can be hard to know, like, well, what do I do with that, right? How do I do? I want to, I want to just, I want to tell you a story really, really quickly. And it's a story of something I think about when I try to sit in this truth of my worth being based upon 
my relationship with God versus my accomplishment. Because I am trained, just like the rest of you, in comparing myself all the time and finding my worth and how I stack up and measure up. What does it mean for my soul to realize that that is a constant chase that you can't win? And instead, living in grace of a relationship and a worth that is just given to you. Okay. What I go to when I think about this was a class that I took in my final year of seminary. Seminary is where you go, got a master's degree to study for the ministry. And I took a course my final year that if people had been talking about all the time that I had been in seminary, right? When I first showed up, there were people who were coming up to me going, man, there is a class when you become a senior you have got to take. It's taught by a guy named Bill Harkins, and it is called Men in Ministry. I'm like, men in ministry, like, oh, that sounds great, right? And, and I was sort of cynical starting seminary, right? Because I, I had only been a Christian for a little while, and there were like all these people who just like, they love church so much, and I was like, I don't really get it. And so I kind of was like jaded. I was sort of like the kid that sat on the outside like, yeah, that sounds cool. Um, and uh, people would talk to you about this class, like, oh, you need to get in this reading. It's about the, uh, they redefine my eschatological reality of stuff. And I'm like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Like, I don't know what you mean by that. So just Stop. So when people came to me, they're like, men in ministry, you're like, God, sounds great. But people kept saying it, like people that I love, and they were like, man, when you become a senior, you've got to take this class. And as I was watching year after year when the class was taught, it was only taught one time a year, the class would fill up. It was the only elective that would fill up every single time with the seniors, with the people that had the first choice of this, because like people would just choose it over and over again. And so by the time you were a second year or a first year student, you didn't have an option of getting into men in ministry. So people waited for it. People would come up to you. It's like, man, when you become a senior, you've got to take men in ministry. You're like, okay, why? I'm like, I can't tell you, but it's really great. You've got to do it. Okay. Well, you know, peer pressure happens, right? And so when I became a senior, and people were like, well, what class do you want to take? It's like, well, I guess I'll take men in ministry. And I got the last slot in the class. The first day that we showed up, it was taught by a guy, a professor named Bill Harkins. And Bill was a part-time professor, and he was a part-time priest at a large Episcopal church in Atlanta. So he only taught some of the time. He was also a pastoral counselor. He studied psychology, and, um, and so he had like these three different roles that he was in and all the time. And Bill, we sat down in class, and there were only eight of us in the class, eight guys, and he sat down and he said, all right, guys, um, two things you need to know about this class. Two things from the beginning. First is this. The first is is that everything we talk about here is confidential. Nothing leaves this room. Because what we're going to do is we're going to talk to you about the things that are truly debilitating in life and spirituality and ministry as men. And if this is going to really work, you're going to have to be open and honest. This is all the stuff we talk about when small groups start, right? It's like people who go, the, the, biggest, the biggest impediment to a small group working is people not telling the truth. Because we live in a world where it's like, I have to measure up and stack up. And so rather than being honest with people about where you are or where your marriage is or where your temptations are or where your sin is, we just sort of go, yeah, I'm pretty good. Like, I don't know, I kind of got this thing. But we, we're not honest. And honesty doesn't happen and change doesn't happen, he said, if there's any sense that anything can get out. So whether it's a D group or a small group or anything else, it's got to be confidential. That's why when people would say, what's so great about the class? Like, I can't really talk about it. So number one, that this has got to be confidential. He said, number two, from the beginning, what you need to hear is every one of you is going to make an A in this course. We're like, what? He said, every single one of you, your, your final grade is already done. It's already written. You will receive an A in this class. And there are papers and there are other things that you have to do. No matter what you make on any of this stuff, your grade is set. No one has ever made anything other than an A. You can't even get an A minus. 
you will get an A in this class. Now you can imagine sitting in a course where you have, you have I had four classes and someone looks at you and says, it's already decided no matter if you read or do anything, you will receive an A. You're like, and there were different reactions in the room, right? Some people were like, they didn't know what to do. They're like, I don't know. I don't know what to do with that, right? Like, is he serious? Maybe that's a test. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to not like, follow that because it could be he's trying to trick us. And then you could see other people who are going, man, I'm going to show him anyway. I'm going to like show him that I've earned it, whether he says that I can earn it or not. There were other people like me that were sitting there going, this is awesome, right? <laughs> like, I got three other classes. I got to read for those classes. This is done, right? I'll sit through the discussions. I'll smile. I'll try to learn something. I'll stay confidential, which I'm not doing right now. But I'm not telling you what any of the guys talked about in class, including me. But it was like, this is great. And then he handed out our first reading assignment for the first week. We only met once a week, and it was to read an article from Sports Illustrated. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, that's the, that's the whole thing. You've got to read this article from Sports Illustrated, and it's about how guys and athletes often find their meaning in victory or they lose their meaning in defeat. And so we're just going to talk about that. You've got to read this article. And I remember for like the first five days after class, I'm like, I'm not reading this. I, I, I've got my grade. I have no reason to read this article because I already know what I'm going to get. And I got tons of other reading. And then like the day before, other people come up going, man, that article is really cool. And you're like, Fine, I'll read the article. And so I read the article. I like Sports Illustrated anyway, right? Show up in class. We had, we had this incredible discussion about how we found meaning and how we found and who was jealous of who in the room just from being in seminary and where we saw victories in ourselves and where we saw defeats. And it was like by the end of class, and I'm being serious, this is like eight fairly normal guys, except for me, is that they were, people were crying in the class talking about how they felt worthless how they didn't feel that they compared to some of the other people in the room or some of the things that their parents had done. or some of the, I mean, just it was like incredible stuff. And the next week there was more reading, and the next week there was more reading, and the next week there was more reading. And it was this incredible experience where it was, and I, I'm saying this, this is totally true, it is the only class in seminary I read every page for for the entire semester. Don't think too much about it. Like, I knew he hadn't read much theology, right? I, I read... <laughs> I did read, just not every page, but I read every page in that class, not for the grade. I read it for the joy of the experience of learning and the transformation of it. And when we got to the last day of class, Bill was like, congratulations, you all got a 4.0. You all, you all made A's in the class. And it was this experience that, that one guy in the class was talking about the impact that it had on him, and he started saying, I wish every class could work this way. And, he re- and, and, and I need you to hear at this point, it wasn't about grades anymore. He goes, I genuinely wish every class could work this way because of how powerful and transforming it had been for us to go through. And I made the comment and said, I wish life worked this way. And you know when someone challenges you on something in a way that's not disrespectful or mean, it's like, something that you know God is teaching you, something that God stretches in you in the moment, Bill Harkins turned around and looked at me in the eyes and said, Thomas, you are training to be a pastor of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is about God's unmerited, amazing love for you. That is how the world works. That is how the world works. He said, you are going to have to figure out as you leave this class how to live a life knowing that your final grade is already set. 
and that everything you do is living in the freedom of what God already declares is true. And I think about that all the time because here's the thing, I still want to be impressive. I want to impress you. I want to impress our staff. I want to impress the elders. I want to impress other pastors. I want to impress my parents. I want to impress all kinds of different people. And one of the most challenging things in the world is sitting in a moment and going, it's already done. My worth has already been declared before I do anything today. My worth is already secure no matter how much I mess up today. May the Lord's graciousness allow his face to shine upon you. I wonder what it would mean for you this week to live free of having to prove your worth and live in the freedom of knowing that your worth has already been decided. I wonder what that would mean. As you think about that, let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us, use us, mold us, shape us, so that we might experience your presence, and that we would know that our worth has already been determined in this world, because you say it is true. May we feel our value not in what we do, but in what you say. It's a whole different way of living and thinking. And it's the only place we will find rest and peace. Help us to discover it today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.